This week on Writers Inc. If I do give myself credit, it's not for being a businessman or, or any of that. It's just for being stubborn and having really thick skin and just, you know, being fortunate enough to love what I was doing so much that most days it didn't feel like work. Even when I was working, you know, 14 hours, it felt like, you know what, I went to bed exhausted, but I felt good. Whether you are traditionally published or indie, writing a good book is only the first step in becoming a successful author. The days of just turning a manuscript into your editor and walking away are gone. If you want to succeed in today's publishing world, you need to understand every aspect of the business. Editing, formatting, marketing, contracts. It all starts with a good book. Then the real work begins. Join international best-selling author J.D. Barker and indie powerhouse Jay Thorne as they gain unique insight and valuable advice from the most prolific and accomplished authors in the business. The publishing world is changing, adapting. Do you have what it takes to become a full-time writer? If you're willing to do the work, we'll give you the tools. Get your notepad out, school's in session. This is Writer's In. Hey, JD. How you doing, man? Hey, doing good. How about you? Good. What, what, are, uh, what are you working on these days? Oh, same old, same old, trying to wrap up the ending for a book. I, I promised Kristen that I would give her a, a thriller, you know, like a mainstream thriller, and I would keep it around 80,000 words. Um, the mainstream thr the thriller part is not a problem for me, but that, that <laughs> word, word count is. And like, I'm trying to, to come up with an ending that is going to make me happy and going to make her happy and the people that ultimately end up picking up the book. Um, and it's tricky because like, I, I tend to like, you know, I, I, I write myself into a corner like purposely, like I'll create a scenario that's almost impossible to get out of. And then I get my characters to find a way out of it. So I just, I can't help myself like, a, you know, where I could wrap up a chapter and kind of tie up the whole book. I'm like, yeah, but if this happens, then that's going to throw it all the way off over here, like a totally different, you know, so I, I keep doing that to myself. And like, I think now I'm at like 104,000 or so. And, um, but I, I've got to rein it in. I need to finish up this ending but basically i've been working on the ending for like the last three weeks just going back and uh, rewriting and cutting stuff out and rewriting and cutting stuff out it, it's like a, a really cool book it's a i don't want to go into the the idea just yet yeah um, but it's it's a, something that hasn't been done yet um and, and i think you know hollywood's gonna eat it up and hopefully my readers will like it too nice well i'm loving the new book uh i mean i guess as we're recording this it's gonna be coming out in a few weeks but uh I, i'm curious how many words are in that uh, well, it was 230,000. Oh um, yeah, I, I trimmed it way back to 207. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a big story. I mean, we talked about this before. So like all my other books tend to take place over, you know, a couple of minutes, a couple hours, or maybe a handful of days. And this one covers almost 40 years. Um, so, you know, I, I didn't want to chintz on that. I wanted to you know, kind of tell the story that, that needed to be told for these characters. And it just, it, it went a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, I, I'm still getting those emails from early reviewers, you know, we're like, oh, I read this in one sitting, you know, like, oh. I, I have, I have no idea how they <laughs> could possibly like me as the author, knowing where the story was going when I was reading through my drafts, it still took me a couple of days. To get <laughs> but those people are out there. And it's like, I, I like seeing um, every once in a while, somebody will send me like a Facebook thread. And I, I saw one the other day between these two women. Um, and they were both reading uh, copies that they got off a of NetGalley and they were going back and forth. And like one of them like said that she got somebody else to pick up her kids so she could stay home and then she ordered pizza so she wouldn't have to make dinner. And it's like, she's just reading and reading and they're both kind of doing the same thing. And it's like, so I, I know the story is solid. I know it keeps everybody's attention. It's just, it's a little bit long. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm so excited to, to find out uh, all about Stella. I, I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I know it's a bit of a tease for our listeners and they'll get a chance to read the book soon, but uh, it's fantastic. I'm loving it so far. So uh, uh, thanks for hooking me up on that. Oh, cool. I appreciate yeah. it. Hey, uh, something I, I did this week I thought might be of interest to you and, and maybe some of our readers. 
I for the first time I narrated uh, my own audiobook. Uh, not really? fic- yeah, not fiction. Uh, this is the nonfiction book, Three Story Method, that Zach and I are working on, and it's relatively short. It's uh, it's like thirty thousand words, um, and it's a it's a story methodology book. But um, it's the very first time I sat down and I and I did narration of my own writing after ten years. It's the first chance I've I've had to do it, and I have to say I think my my time podcasting really paid off. I was able to to nail most of the uh, of the chapters on the first take. And um, and I didn't get uh, fatigued. I felt pretty good, and I, I was recording uh, four or five hours a day, uh, knocking it out, and it, it went pretty well. Well, you've got a, a pretty decent amount of podcasting hours behind you. Yeah, I think. that's true. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it, it definitely helps. I mean, we talked about this when I went in to record the author's note for for the book you're reading right now. Um, you know, like I with my other books, I the author's note is maybe two or three minutes long. It's not, not a very long thing, but you know, I would get halfway through it and I find myself starting to talk faster and faster. And then my eyes are like jumping ahead on the page. Yeah. And, you know, then I, I'll, you fumble a word and you've got to stop and go back. Um, you know, so little things I've noticed that have helped me out it, you know, doing the podcast has, has been tremendous for sure. Um, but just sitting down, you know, which is something I never yeah. really thought of before, but like the first couple of times that I did this, I was, I was standing at a microphone in the studio and I, I tend to talk faster. I found when I'm standing up versus when I'm sitting down and just a little bit more relaxed. Um, so that, that helped me out quite a bit. Uh, but I, I do think, I mean, with, with your background, I mean, you, you should be able to go through a nonfiction book, I think pretty, pretty easily. Um, I, I, I'm very impressed by the people that, you know, like Neil Gaiman, like if you listen to any of his audiobooks where he records his own or even Stephen King, where he did Bag of Bones, you know, where they do the different voices and everything oh, yeah. else. I mean, it's, it's such a, a crazy skill set to have. I, I remember I was at the American Library Association conference a couple of years back for Fourth Monkey when it came out and they had a panel of uh, audiobook narrators up there and people were just putting books in front of them that they'd never seen before and they would just start rattling it off like it was nothing, all the different voices and, and you know, not even missing a beat, you know, going four or five minutes without a mistake. And I mean, it's so impressive and you don't realize just how difficult it is to try to do it yourself. Yeah. And I I think too, especially if you're, if you're working on a project that you're going to independently publish, there's a lot of advantages if you can do the narration yourself. I mean, not only are you saving on the upfront cost, but then you're recouping most of the royalties when you're selling it too. Well, and there's something, especially with that type of book, you know, to hear the the author actually read it to you, I think that's kind of special too. Yeah. Um, You know, know, like I'm a big fan of on writing by Stephen King and and he narrates that audio book. And it, it almost feels like he's in a room with you, you know, guiding it up you know, telling you how he, you know, how he writes his book. Yeah. I'm sure people will get that out of yours when you listen to it as well. Yeah, hopefully. But, um, yeah, so that's what we're doing. Uh, but we have an interview this week and, uh, really excited about this. Um, you want to introduce our guest? Yeah, it's, it's Richard Chismar. Um, and this is somebody I kind of stumbled into. I, I, I knew about Cemetery Dance Magazine. I mean, I grew up and, you know, it was something that I had seen a bunch of times and had heard about. Um, and as a member of the Horror Writers Association, you know, I get to vote on the Bram Stoker Awards. And a couple of years back, I got a short story collection um, from, from Rich. Um, it was called, I believe, Long December. Um, and that was the first time I had read anything of his. And I was just completely blown away. I mean, the, the writing was just phenomenal. Um, and, and, and it takes a lot to really engage me. I tend to put stuff down if I get a couple pages into it and, and it just doesn't grab me. I mean, life is too short to read something that's, that you don't like. So, right. um, but there was just something about his writing and, and it really does have a, a Stephen King kind of feel to it. I know we kind of, you know, he, he kind of sets the watermark for a lot of these things. Um, but one of the things that Rich did that really grabbed me as a writer is he was able to jump back and forth in time fairly easily. And that really impressed me. I mean, you know, you would be in the moment with his characters 
In the next sentence, he would have a you know a quick little flashback that kind of explains something about that character. And then the next paragraph, he was right back into it with the, the existing storyline. And that's a very difficult thing to, to do um, and, and keep your reader engaged. And he's very good at it. Um, what I'd love to see Rich do is sit down and write something that's you know, like long, like a, yeah. like a novel length book. I mean, he, he is phenomenal. He, he clearly enjoys writing short stories. And that comes from, you know, he wrote so many for Cemetery Dance. And it's just something that he obviously enjoys. But I'd love to see a, a full length novel out of him um, and, and see where he goes with something like that. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, uh, you know, Cemetery Dance is sort of one of those, you know, magazines that we all fans of horror know. And, and I, I didn't realize that I had, um, I had been in a box set with Brian James Freeman years and years ago. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of a small world sometimes, you know, but, um, yeah, I think, uh, hearing, hearing Richard's perspective is going to be really interesting. Cause I think he had a, a slightly different start than, than most of us. So should we get into the interview and then we'll come back later and talk about it? Yeah, I can't wait. Let's go. All right, let's do it. You know, I normally, uh, I normally don't start at the beginning, but you have such a long storied history in the industry. I feel like I have to, uh, right, right. so take me back to 1988 and, and tell me what's going on in your life at that time. Oh, let's see. I was during, yeah, I was just starting my last year of, uh, of college and I had been, I just transferred to the University of Maryland College Park from UMBC, which was the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, uh, where I played lacrosse. And, uh, you know, that was kind of my main focus for the previous three years. Um, and then I, uh, I had some injury issues and then that kind of made me walk away from the game. I, you know, I had a scholarship and all that. So I was kind of bumming, you know, I was kind of in a weird place. And uh, right around that time is when Stephen King's It came out in hardcover. And uh, I started reading this book and it was uh, you talk about right time, right place and, and a gift from, uh, you know, from the fates or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, it kind of just it, it, it gave me all the answers to the questions I had all of a sudden, which was, what do I do now? Um, and it immediately kind of uh, rejuvenated my love of the horror genre and writing and, and the whole creative world. And uh, within within weeks I was uh, writing for the uh, UMBC uh, newspaper and the next semester they asked me to, uh, to be the sports editor. Um, so I did that. And that, that coupled with <clears throat> getting back into uh, the horror stuff, just, it really uh, sparked my, you know, my desire to start writing again. Cause I had written stories when I was a kid, but obviously nothing in any kind of serious fashion. Um, so uh, I transferred to College Park to, to major in journalism because I figured, you know, I've got to get a real job. Um, and it was while I was there, I started writing short stories and I was submitting them to, you know, that was the heyday of magazines back then. I mean, you had the, the big ones like uh, Night Cry and Twilight Zone and uh, you had like Gore Zone, which was an offshoot of Fangoria. And uh, then you had a bunch of really cool semi-pro ones like the, like the Horror Show by David Silva and... Uh, grew and 2am there's just too many to list there were literally dozens it was it was an awesome time um and you know i got my rejections i got a pile of rejections but i also started to sell um quite a few short stories and, and you know i look back now and they're pretty bad but I, I wasn't selling to the big magazines i wasn't you know i was rejected uh many times by the big ones like twilight zone and horror show and all those um but uh 
yeah. So I started selling stories. So all of a sudden I felt like, all right, this, you know, I might have some potential in this. And I was having a blast, which was the important thing. And uh, what happened is, is I started getting my contributor copies and, you know, half the time I was really proud of them. And I was like, Hey, you know, showing them to my friends, showing them to my girlfriend, like, Hey mom and dad, see. <clears throat> and then the other half, I'd pull the contrib copies out of the envelope and I would kind of cringe and I'd be like, Oh, I can't show this one to anybody that even the staples are rusty. <laughs> you know, the artwork looks like it's been drawn by, <clears throat> you know, by me, which is, which is not a pretty thing. Um, and that kind of gave me the thought that, you know, maybe I can do this and, and maybe I could actually do a magazine and, and, and do it uh, and, and publish something that was, uh, you know, pretty high quality. Um, I was starting to make some contacts with, with, you know, a handful of different writers. Um, and the turning point was when I found out that, that the horror show that Dave Silva was pretty much a one, one man crew. Um, you know, obviously he had a stable of, of great writers and artists and all that, but I found out that he designed the magazine by himself that he uh, handled all the subscriptions and marketing. He did the proofreading um, that he was just this one man show up in this trailer in, in, in the woods in Northern California. So when I found that out, I like to say, you know, I was just young and dumb enough to think, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So that's what I did. I just, you know, I decided to start this magazine. Um, Cemetery dance came from the title of, of the first short story that I had ever written. And, uh, it, you know, that I, I got more feedback on, on the title of the story than I did on the quality of the story itself. So I remember that when it was time to name the magazine, that it kind of stuck out in people's minds. And um, yeah, so that's that's what happened. I, I just, you know, those were kind of the stepping stones. And, you know, when I when I first started giving talks, you know, whether it was at libraries or writer conventions or wherever, I realized it made me nervous looking back because I realized if, if a few of those things didn't happen at exactly the time that they happened, I have no clue what I'd be doing. You know, if, if it didn't come out then, if I didn't get hurt when I got hurt, um, you know, if I didn't pick up the copy of, of the horror show that I, I, I still remember what we were out shopping for something because uh, uh, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, we were going to a wedding and that's when I found the horror show at, on, on the newsstand at Barnes and Oak. Um, so I think about all those things that I just, you know, I kind of cross myself as, as an old reformed Catholic and say, you know, thank you to whoever out there was responsible. Wow. Uh, there's so much I want to poke into there. Let, let's start. Let's go back for a second. I, I'd love to hear if you can remember, what was it about it that that just shifted your paradigm or changed you in such a significant way? Um, I think it was a couple things. Uh, one was the voice. I bet you know what? It got me right from that opening chapter. I mean, the boat going down, you know, the rain swollen gutter and just the, just his language. I mean, I, I, I don't remember it verbatim um, and I'm kind of wiped out at the moment. So I don't really I probably don't even remember it, you know, to paraphrase it. But when it, at the end of that first little uh, prelude thing where he says, you know, and that's, you know, it, it, the boat slipped down so and so street and so and so. And then it fell into the gutter. And that's where it leaves our story. I was just like, man, that's storytelling. That is, it, and that was like on page, you know, page 10 or something. Um, but also that effing clown, man. I mean, you know, I was, I went in blind. I had no idea what the book was about. I just, so I'm reading this thing and there's, you know, the poor kid gets his arm yanked off and I'm like, holy sh And, uh, and then also the fact that it was about kids. You know, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, I had my crew of kids that we did everything together. 
and I was the, you know, I was the freaky one always telling uh, scary stories to him at night. You know, we'd be out playing football or, or wiffle ball or whatever, or having a crab apple battle. And then we'd walk home, you know, it sounds kind of poetic, but we'd walk home by the neighborhood haunted house and there'd be fireflies out there blinking. And, you know, everyone walked a little quicker when we walked this one route. And I was always the, the wise ass who started telling a scary story or I would I would turn around, look over my shoulder, scream and take off sprinting and everyone would scream and follow me. So the fact that I kind of, I could really relate to, uh, to the losers club as far as, uh, you know, having that kind of bond. Um, and it just, everything about that book for me was, was, was really magical. You know, I've, I've reread it many times since, and, you know, I can see the flaws that exist, but I didn't care. I mean, at the end of that book, the last 150 pages, I remember, forcing myself to only read you know 15 20 pages a day so it wouldn't end um and i think that you know i think sometimes that happens we all have that those handful of projects which um whether they hold up or not over time and i i feel like it does um it's still it doesn't matter man when they came at that time for you it was the perfect timing and it was the perfect piece of work and so yeah it just uh it was and, and it broke my heart at the end you know, my son, uh, Billy, just recently finished his first read of it. And uh, he's like, holy shit, Dad, you're right. At the end, man, you know, tears. The idea that these guys could go through all this and then come back as adults and go through it all again. And then they all forget again. They all start to forget again. Is It's like it broke my heart. And I'm like, you and me both. <laughs> and he's at the same age right now, uh, pretty much, that I was when I read it for the mm. first time. Mm. So when you were running through the neighborhood after your crab apple battles, I have to laugh because that was in my childhood too. Crab apples and milkweeds, we used to throw those oh, yeah. at each other, right? Uh, when you're the guy running through the neighborhood and, and making up these stories, uh, do you think that was something, because you've, you've been very successful, especially in short form, uh, did that translate into short story? Was that something you had to develop or do you feel like you just had a natural affinity for that mode of storytelling? Um. You know what? I think it, it probably was always there in me. And I think that's another reason why I've, uh, um, you know, I, I have felt that connection with, with Steve King's work, like so many other people do. He has that very conversational kind of everyday uh, campfire type, you know, storing telling um, style. And I think, I think that was kind of in me from the beginning. I mean, there was another buddy of mine, this guy named Jimmy, who was, who was probably my best friend when I was young and he did the same thing. I mean, it was always he, he and I kind of riffing on it and going back and forth. Now he had no desire to, to write. Um, I was always writing, you know, like little monster stories and, uh, and war story. I was just a weird dude. I remember making up, like, I remember making up treasure maps, drawing these treasure maps and I would go out ahead of time and I would bury, my dad was, uh, was a military guy. He was retired then, but he had coins and all these things from all over the world. And I can remember going out and burying like these foreign coins that, that, you know, were pretty much worthless, but, and then pretending I found a treasure map in my garage <laughs> and leading us. And, uh, <laughs> You know, my buddy Jimmy to this day will be like, yeah, I knew you were full of shit. And I'm like, you know what? It took you like 10 treasure maps, man. 10 maps. So, yeah. I'm like, it took you a while. So, yeah. I mean, I think that style, that sense of uh, of sitting around a campfire and just telling, you know, whatever came to mind. I think that was always there. And, you know, my my style, my writing style, you know, I, I'm always the first to say, you know, I'm not a big plotter. If you're looking for like, uh, you know, stylistic type of writing that's going to make you step back and go, wow, I need to read that again. That's not me. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty, 
I'm pretty uh, lean and mean and, and plain spoken. Um, and fun though. Fun. Yeah. I, well, I have fun when I do it for yeah. sure. And especially, you know, certain kind of stories where, you know, like I, like I have an it in me, I have a, a, you know, somewhere in me, I've got a big fat kid populated, you know, scary book. And Sound I'm, I'm Jeopardy broke. story, right? Yeah. I'm looking forward to writing that sometime, but, uh, but yeah, I just, you know, I write about, you know, kind of what I knew, um, which is, you know, kind of uh, mainly human type monsters and, and the masks that, that people wear and, and kind of hide behind. And, uh, you know, I had that in me as a child, too. I, like I said, I grew up in a suburban neighborhood. Was, I always tell people it's kind of like the Wonder Years, but with a little bit of, you know, Twin Peaks or something bent and dark thrown in there. Because I even at an early age, I kind of knew that behind those closed doors, there, there was stuff going on that, uh, that, you know, no one wanted you to know about and maybe wasn't quite right. And, and we, yeah, you know, we had all the small town legends, like I said, a haunted house, we had the, you know, the ghosts and, and the monsters in the woods and all that. So where I grew up was, and with the guys I grew up with, it was absolutely ripe for, you know, for the imagination to kind of go. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can see that. Let's fast forward a little bit and tell me about uh, when Brian James Freeman and you teamed up and sort of how you operate together in cemetery dance these days. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, like I said, it was just me. And then, uh, we had a period where, where my, my wife, um, she got into PT school or physical therapy school, but she didn't get in for, for this semester. She got in the next semester. So she was helping me. So there was actually two of us and she got into school and then it was just me. Um, and then her lifelong friend, Mindy came, she moved back from uh, Arizona and she started working for us. Um, you know, part-time cause I certainly couldn't afford to pay her much. Um, and, and she's, you know, she's still with us today. Um, and then at some point, and you know what, I, Brian could tell you, I don't even remember when it was. I mean, at this point, um, I ran the business from, you know, starting, I ran it and, and I, I told Kara recently, I'm like, I want to take a time machine day and just drive to all these places and kind of reminisce because, uh, it's a cool story for me, you know, personally, but you know, when I started it, I was in an apartment at college. Then I was in, uh, we had a six month period where, uh, um, I moved right after I graduated where I moved home and lived with my parents because Kara was still going to college and it was right before we got married. So I ran it from my old bedroom in my house. Then I ran it from this tiny little bedroom, um, this tiny little apartment in the back of a house while, while Kara went to uh, physical therapy school. Um, then I, then we actually bought a house. I think I was 30. Um, so I ran it from the garage, the basement and one of the upstairs rooms. And then we finally moved to office space about 20 minutes from our house. And that's when Brian came on board. I mean, he was a young pup right out of, uh, right out of college and, um, you know, full of ideas and, and, and really smart, you know, both book smart and also, uh, you know, business smart. So I, I, you know, he was the first one I kind of let behind the, the curtain and, and said, you're going to be surprised at the fact that we are successful because I'm not a business guy. Um, I'm, I'm the creative guy and I'm pretty good at marketing because I like ideas and I like trying things and I've never been afraid to try things. Um, you know, so those are all good ingredients, but you add somebody like Brian to it and it, and it becomes, you know, a really positive thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I'm thinking that was probably 15 years in something like that. Um, so he changed a lot of, of things and, and is still trying to. Sometimes I'm a pain in the ass and they need to convince me um, 
uh, that things would run smoother or easier a certain way. Um, but after 31 years, I think I'm doing pretty good at getting, letting them take the, the wheel. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he came on board and then, you know, at some point we hired his wife and we had part-time help and became a real business with like, you know, if you would have told me back then that one day I would have two, two big, you know, warehouses and, you know, real payroll checks from a payroll company and, and insurance that I was paying for them and all this other stuff, I would have been like, yeah, right. You know, I've got two checking accounts back then. That way, if I bounced a check from one, I was still good in the other account. Um, because, you know, we started with no money. I started, I started that business with, with the credit cards that they send you when you're in college. And, you know, most time you like stay far away from them because they're 21% interest. Yeah. <laughs> but that was my, that was my seed money because it was like, you know, who else is going to give a 21 year old kid a bunch of money? So, so, so how have you been able to, I mean, if you're not a business guy, how have you been able to keep this rolling for so long? Well, I think those first 10 years, I, honestly, the answer was I, I was a good marketer. Um, I, I understood, I understood some things that, that I try to, you know, help people with now. And sometimes they get it. And sometimes they're just like, well, I can't afford to do that. And I'm like, well, I couldn't either. I get it. You know, I was in a better position than, than a lot of people because I was so young. So I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have children. Um, you know, I, uh, you know, 99% of it was self-finance. I can certainly remember my, you know, my dad's not alive anymore, but he certainly helped me out and uh, out of a couple jams by, you know, Hey dad, can I borrow 500 bucks? I'll give it back to you in a week. And, you know, we didn't come from a lot of money, but he was always there for me if that happened. Um, but for the most part, it was flying by the seat of our pants and we just kind of outworked everybody. Honestly, we, we, we understood very early on a couple of things when, you know, you need to try to reach, I didn't want to be small. I, I wanted, I liked the idea of mixing fiction with nonfiction interviews, reviews. I liked the idea of mixing really well-known writers with newcomers. You know, I got some slack for that at times because they're like, well, why are you publishing, you know, these Joe Lansdale and, and Richard Lehman and RC Matheson and, and God forbid Stephen King. And I'm like, well, because I love their work. And if I can have a chance to work with them, you're damn right. I'm going to do it. And my philosophy was always, it helps. You know, I published Norman Partridge's first story, a guy who, who is a great writer. To me, it's going to help a writer like Norman or all the other first time writers or fairly new writers I publish. It's going to help them so much more if they are appearing alongside Joe Lansdale and Stephen King than if it's just all new guys. You know, so my idea was always to go you know, color covers, get some newsstand distribution. And, and I think by issue five, we were color covers and uh, in comic stores. And by like issue seven, we were in the bookstores. Um, it was a different world back then. So, you know, you did have a lot more avenues. It's still a crummy business from the side of, you know, how they, you know, ripped your magazines up, sent you back covers and for returns. But, um, you know, we, we understood that we, we, I, I wanted to reach a larger audience. So I did things like I bought as many mailing lists as I could. I, I spent more time folding flyers, putting them in envelopes, sealing envelopes and putting stamps on them and mailing them out than probably any other aspect of the magazine other than reading submissions. But we were constantly trying to increase our subscriber base because I understood that if we increased our subscriber base and the look of the magazine got better, then we would get newsstand distribution. And if we could get those things, then maybe advertisers would start coming in. So that, you know, people say, oh, well, that's a really great business. And I'm like, well, it's pretty basic to me, but I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know the nuts and bolts of, you know, people say, well, you had a business plan. I'm like, no, you know, people say now, if you don't have a business plan, you shouldn't become a publisher. And I, I'm just like, well, 
I, I know I didn't have a chance then because again, I was kind of just going out of passion and my love for the genre and pumping out those 80 hour weeks and just working my ass off and just something as little as I, I referred to it before giving away the magazine in the beginning I had, I used to call it the VIP list. Um, and anytime I saw someone who I thought, you know, I want that person to read my magazine, I would put them on the VIP list. So each issue I was probably giving away anywhere from 75 to 125 issues, but you know what? That's how I got. Do, does anyone think Joe Lansdale, Peter Straub, Stephen King were going to subscribe to my magazine? No, no, <clears throat> especially not when in the beginning when it was dot matrix and black and white art that my college roommate drew and the whole thing. No, you know, they weren't, but guess what? I put those issues in front of them. So they got to see our growth and that's what, that's what excited people about uh, coming on board and helping us, you know, cause back then I wasn't paying anywhere near professional rates. I always paid, but it was pennies and, and um, that's what, uh, I mean, that's how my relationship with Steve started at some point after three or four issues. Uh, he sent me a really nice promotional blurb to use for cemetery dance. And uh, then by issue, I think it was by 91, we put it in issue 14. He sent me a brand new story. Um, that that would never have happened if he hadn't seen the previous dozen issues and and saw the growth. And and the same thing goes for the Peter Straubs and Lansdales and Locust magazines and all the places. So that's something I always tell people. And I'm like, I, I believe it was absolutely integral to our success. And I get a lot back of, well, there's no way I could afford to send out even 50 free copies. And I'm like, you know what? I understand. I, I truly do, but I couldn't either. But it, it was, I wasn't looking at the, at the uh, small picture. I was looking at the big picture and kind of saying, you know, this, this is going to help us as long as we're putting out a good product. So, so those kind of things, you know, I tell those stories and people are like, well, you really were a good businessman. And I'm like, no, I was the same kid who, who used to sit on the corner of Hanson and Tupelo when I was a kid and selling glasses of lemonade, cups of lemonade. I always had fun doing that, that kind of little entrepreneur thing. I'd have my little yard sales. Uh, I was the worst magician in the neighborhood, but <laughs> I charged a nickel ahead and, and the kids still came to laugh at me. So I always had that kind of spirit in me and I, I just applied it to the magazine for a long time. That's what I said. I said, I'm still a kid selling cups of lemonade um, on the corner. And, um, you know, that's that I think that was the key is just kind of following my passion, being willing to do the work and being very stubborn, because in those first 10 years with so many mistakes and so many down periods, um, you know, it'd be time to do income tax and I'd like figure it out. I'm making six cents an hour, you know, um, but, uh, I had a great group of friends. My wife was great. You know, everybody understood that I was working my ass off and that, <clears throat> you know, this one day this was going to work somehow. Um, so that's, that's kind of what happened. I mean, it's, it's, uh, if I do give myself credit, it's not for being a businessman or, or any of that. It's just for being stubborn and having really thick skin and just, you know, being fortunate enough to love what I was doing so much that most days it didn't feel like work. Even when I was working, you know, 14 hours, it felt like, you know what, I went to bed exhausted, but I felt good. Hmm. Wow. Well, if you were forced to start it over today, what would you do? What would be like the first three things you would do in today's climate versus 1988? Boy, I, first thing I'd probably do is like take a bunch of Advil because I would have such a headache trying to figure out. Somebody asked me this question the other day and I was like, wow. You know, it's like, it's like, how do I distinguish myself? He was talking more from the uh, standpoint of being a self-published writer, you know, which is something I support because I think they thought I was going to say, no, I believe in the traditional route. And I'm like, you know what? I believe in anything that'll get the job done. 
And the idea of, again, that entrepreneur side of me, even though I'm a publisher and maybe I shouldn't be saying this, but that, that kind of marketing entrepreneur guy in me actually loves the idea of self-publishing because you're selling cups of lemonade for real. You know, you're make, you're making that, you're mixing it up yourself. You're getting your work edited. You're getting your own covers. You're doing your own cover copy. And then it's, you know, you're out there spending whatever money you're spending on marketing and advertising. Now, the hard part becomes because so many people are doing it and a lot of them badly. How do I get my work to stand out? Um, so the, that's the first thing is what three things I'm not sure I could get past the first one. because <laughs> I mean, back then when I started, you know, one of the first big things we did was advertise. We, we, we took some money out of uh, my wife's uh, student loan and we advertised in Twilight Zone. And we did a half page ad. It was probably something ridiculous, like $800, $900, which was a fortune. And it ended up paying for itself, you know, several times over, but it got noticed by people, uh, including writers. So we started getting some submissions from people who, who were like, wow, they must be, they must have big plans if they're advertising in Twilight Zone. But like right now, I don't know who I'd, who I'd advertise in. You know, Fangoria is back. Um, so that's, that's, that's nice. But it's so much of it's designed for the internet now and online, which didn't exist when I started. Um, I mean, there's no, you know, there's no mailing list for me to buy now and put stamps on the flyers and postcards. It's all internet. So I, I imagine probably the first thing I would do would be do a, a, a bucket load of research and try to find my niche online and try to find those cracks um, that I thought maybe I could explore and, <clears throat> and do something different from everyone else. Um, but it's on, it's a great question. And I, it's one of those ones where it's like, wow, that kind of sends a shiver down my spine because I don't know, man, I don't know what, you know, would it, would it be online? Would it just be, I mean, you can, if you, if you publish online, you can afford to do beautiful full color and this fancy design. And, you know, it's like the equivalent of publishing a, an actual physical magazine with glossy pages and full color throughout. But yeah. But so can everybody else. Right. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. You know, yeah. I, I mean, you know, if, if my son was to come to me, I'd be like, well, you're going to be able to get a lot of talent because, uh, the, you know, the, the, the markets have shrunk and you're going to be able to get a lot of talent because, you know, you're going to be able to kind of, play off the cemetery dance connection, but I'm like, but I don't know how you're going to, you know, and I know you'll do a great job as making it look professional and all that, but I don't know how the hell you're going to, you know, stand out from the others. Unless for some reason, Steve King decides to bless you and send you, you know, uh, uh, 50,000 words that you can serialize it through 10 issues or something like that. I'm like, I just don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, that's a tricky question. I, uh, when I, that self-published writer, who asked me that? I just said, you know, it, the cliche, the the basic answer would be, you know, obviously get your work professionally edited and, and you know, the cover. The cover is going to make you stand out right away. A lot of the covers automatically are, you will kind of delete themselves from, from potential for readers just because they're so horrible. And I'm like, so I, I would think short, punchy, evocative, uh, you know, uh, promo copy because there's so much noise out there the shorter but also the, the the most effective the better obviously and then a really great cover and even then you're one of so many so i don't mean i don't mean it to be hopeless because because trust me i mean i had i had plenty of people in the field kind of thinking kind of looking at me cross-eyed back in 88 and 89 and 90 and it was just interesting because all my friends 
you know, who are out of the world, they supported it and, and believed in it just because they saw how hard I was working. And I think they also knew I was a hard-headed, stubborn guy. Um, but, and I had huge support within the genre. I mean, without David Silva and some of the other editors to talk to and ask advice and some of the writers who gave me great advice in the beginning too, when they certainly didn't have to. Um, but there was always, there were always those handful of, of folks who kind of looked at you cross-eyed thinking, oh, he's going to crash and burn within two issues because there's no way this can keep up. And then I went to, and, and you could almost trace it through each progression. You know, once I went in the comic shops, oh, you know, his printing bill just got bigger. He's going to crash. And then when I went to color covers, especially when I went to the color covers on issue five, I remember hearing that for the first time, kind of hearing it myself instead of hearing it secondhand. Um, and I wasn't offended. I, I just figured that was the natural, you know, state of of any kind of business field um that you would have doubters but <clears throat> yeah they were always out there and I, like i said i'm hard-headed i got thick skin i think i got thick skin from uh from from playing sports you know you get coached you get yelled at you get criticized you, but they're but they're doing it to make you better so somehow that transferred over for me and, and it was like legit thick skin i would read a bad review and i'd be like okay he's got a point there or i just you know i remember reading one where probably year five or six and the reviewer said <clears throat> you know it's a, it's, a, it's an admirable magazine blah 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 but i feel like he 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 definitely as an editor sells out and he buys too many trump stories from the big guys and i'm thinking of myself and i remember reading that and kind of giggling and saying no you know you, you're kind of insulting me twice because i really do like those stories <laughs> and i'm kind of known for you know uh, uh in the beginning i remember i had kind of a uh I was kind of on the outs with, with Dick Lehman because I rejected a long piece from him and he, he, you know, he was such a great guy and I, and I eventually built such a nice relationship and friendship with, with Dick. But I think, I think maybe some people got in his ear and were like, who does Chismar think he is rejecting you? But that was the thing. I, I legit bought what I liked and rejected what didn't work for me. I didn't care what name was attached to it, which is why thank God when Steve sent me chattery teeth, I loved it. You know, because I'm like, people said that, would you have rejected Steve? And I'm like, you know what? I was stupid enough that I, and, and, and like so set on holding on to my editorial integrity that I probably would have rejected it if I didn't like it. And that would have been a mistake, but it's all I knew, you know, you're young and idealistic and, um, but yeah, so I remember the doubters and, and then certainly at times you felt hopeless, you know, outside my apartment, we had this hill and this grassy hill. <clears throat> and whenever my wife would come back from school and I'd be sitting on that hill, she knew, oh boy, it was a bad day. And we started calling it Misery Hill. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, you know, when I say all that stuff, I don't want people to think, oh great, you know, even hard-headed Chismar thinks that if you were starting now, it's a hopeless situation because it's not. You just, you just ha would have to, I, I think it, what would have to distinguish you is how many hours you were willing to put into it, how many risks you were willing to take, um, and not necessarily just financially, but um, you know, creatively. And then um, how many times you were willing to kind of fall down and get back up again? Because I think, I do think even with 31 years of experience, if I had to start from scratch right now and figure out how to stand, you know, it's kind of hard to say that because of the, the connections I have with people in the field would give me such a huge advantage. But if I didn't have that and I was starting over now, even with a lot of the publishing knowledge I have, it would be I feel like it would be an uphill climb as it should be, you know, if, if yeah. we're doing, it shouldn't be easy. And, and that makes me look old and sound old saying that, but it's something that I believed when I was 20 as well as right now, you know? 
Nice. You you have a, a very nice, long and professional relationship with Stephen King. And I'd like to uh, know sort of, if you can, where, where are things now on several of those projects? Whether if you want to talk about Gwendy's or the Trapped film or any of that, sort of what kind of uh, um, progress are you guys making? Steve, you know, I, 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 like I said, I kind of traced the beginnings of that with Steve. And then I met him for the first time in 99 at, at his party for Carrie. It was a reunion, uh, um, 25th uh, anniversary party. And I just met him. You know, he, he was kind enough to invite me. I still believe it was probably his assistant who got me on the list because, you know, it's not like we were we were phone buddies or anything. Bad. There was no Internet. I mean, there was by 99, but it was still, you know, at least for us, it was pretty new. And I just, um, you know, the, the business relationship turned into a friendship eventually. And then it did become about more than books and, and, and short stories. And, and, and it became, a, you know, a genuine friendship. Um, and that's that's kind of where we are. So it's like it's interesting. People say, well, you know, do you guys talk business all the time? Like we hardly ever. It's a miracle that Glendy came about because we, we just don't talk about that kind of stuff. If I have a proposal or an idea, I go to his agent and I tell his agent just as as always. Tell me no. You don't even have to take it to Steve if you don't like the idea. But if you do, tell him no big deal. So he, he understands that. And people think, wow, he's you've published so many books and done this and that. He must, you know, and I'm like, you must have the secret formula. And I tell people all the time, he says no to me all the time, which he should. Um, but the interesting thing is, is to kind of go back to your question is where we are, um, both relationship and, and project wise is, you know, now that we've become such friends, I find myself not really asking him to do anything for the most part, because I feel like, you know what, he knows I'm here. He knows what I do. If he wakes up one day with this idea that might, you know, be odd enough that, you know, he would want to go with a different publisher than Simon and Schuster, you know, in New York or Scribner, then, you know, he would, and he's done it before he would email me or he would text me or pick up the phone and say, Hey, Rich, you want to do this? Cause I feel like, you know, the guy has been so generous and kind to us that, you know, I would love, of course, I'd love to work with him every year. Um, but, you know, I, I've never had that sense of entitlement with him, which I know a lot of people do. They don't understand how can, how in the world could he say no to this idea? And I'm like, well, I can give you 50 reasons why he could. And I can give you 51. The big one is because you actually have this sense of entitlement, like he should do this. And I, it's something I've never had. And I, I, don't, I don't understand why other people do um no matter who they are but but anyway uh, i'm rambling but the, the bottom line is that that's kind of where we are with that is i just i don't bug them you know for that stuff anymore and most of the time we're just talking about sports or you know books that we've read or movies or our dogs or our families our kids you know we talk about our kids a lot um and uh you know every once in a while something comes up you know button box came up because i sent them an email about uh, a round robin project that I had seen somewhere. I think, I think it was with a bunch of crime writers. And I remember saying, Hey, you ever have any interest in this or you ever read one of these? And and then we started trading emails back and forth and we started talking about collaborations and um, somewhere in there, he said, yeah, I started, you know, this story um, a while back that I've never been able to finish. And I just said, Hey, well, I'd love to read it if you want to send it. Um, you know, that's one of the cool things about being friends with Steve is every once in a while, he'll send you something early, whether it's a book or a review that he wrote for someone or, a, you know, a short story, whatever. Um, so that was that. And the next morning he sent me Gwendy and, it, and his note that was attached just said, hey, do do with this as you wish or something like that. And I was like, oh, 
okay. And I, so I read it and I loved it and I wrote him right back. And I said, you, you know, you, you really okay with me taking a crack at finishing this? And he's like, yeah, if you want to. And it's like an hour later, he texted me, he said, Rich, you know, only if you're going to have fun, there's no pressure. You don't feel like you have to. And I wrote him back and I'm like, you know what, man, I'm going to try. And if you don't like it, you know, you can flush it. And he, you know, he wrote me back something funny, a funny response to that. And um, that's how button box came about. It was, I never in a million years would have pitched him. I never, you know, the big thing that, I, that when we did press for that book that I always told the reporters was, I said, you know, look, I'm a big dreamer, have been my whole life, but I never dreamed that big. I never would have thought, hey, you know, this, this Chismar guy is going to get a chance to write with his literary hero and the guy who is honestly responsible for me. The doing guy who I'm wrote doing. it, right? I mean, that's yeah. full circle. Yeah, the, I mean, amazing. the guy who I used to sit up in a tree with, with one of his paperbacks and read and, and, and just, you know, he was like my connection to a lot of people, you know, we'd, I'd be like, you know, stuck at some gathering or something. And somebody would mention, you know, I'd be bored and I'd be like, Oh, thinking of how to get out of here. And then somebody would mention like, you know, and then I was reading Salem's lot and I'd be like, my head would jerk around. What? You know, all of a sudden I was interested in sticking around, but so yeah, it was, I never in a million years would have asked or even thought it, it would have been one of those ridiculous thoughts. Like, you know, Hey, you know, maybe Marty Scorsese is going to call me to act in his next film. And, I'm not even an actor, so that's not really quite right. You know, it'd be for me, it'd be like, well, maybe the Baltimore Orioles are going to ask me to come out next year and play second base for them. You know, it'd be that. But uh, so that's how they came about. And, and it, again, it was it was kind of an extension of our friendship. And I never thought to ask him, Steve, what the hell were you thinking? You know, asking me what made. But when we did the audio interview i'm pretty sure that's where it was. We did a couple joint interviews. Uh, a very nice lady who did the interview, she asked him. Uh, what made you think it would work with Rich? And he said, I just finished reading his collection. And um, he, she, he said he writes about small towns and neighborhoods and families, you know, really, really strongly and, and with a lot of love and emotion. And he said, so I just thought he would be the one. If anyone could finish Wendy, it'd be him. So I was like, ah, I'm so, I actually thank her. I'm like, I'm, later, I'm like, I'm so glad you asked that because I never thought to ask it like an idiot. I never would have had the balls to ask it. But uh yeah, I mean, when I look back, I do. I'm like, I, I think if she hadn't asked that question at some point, I would have woke up and thought and probably emailed him and said, Steve, what the hell were you thinking? You know, why do you think this would work? And since we are friends, wouldn't it have sucked to write me back and say, Rich, this sucks? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so, a good thing you're a good writer because, yeah, that would have put him in a spot. <laughs> yeah, and I had, and I have no idea how, you know, I did Brian Keene's uh, podcast a couple weeks ago and I, I started letting a, a few four letter colorful words fly because it, in that moment, it hit me. I'm like, I have no effing idea how I, how I did that. You know, it, it's obviously it's, it's, it's not this great piece of literature, but it's a really fun uh, story with, I think a lot more going on in it than, you know, the 160 pages leads you to believe. And, um, and I really love Wendy. I think she's just a, a really, you know, she's symbolic of, 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 of what people can be, you know, a really good person at heart. And, um, but, but at the same time, she's really human and flawed. And, but so I look back at that and I'm just like, I have no idea. And then as, as I was talking and I'm like, and for that matter, I have no idea how magic feather came out of me either. Cause it's, it's just, I, I don't, they're, they're both mystery books to me. I don't know where they came from, how they came out, how I did have the balls to even sit down and do them. But some, you know, someone or something's up there looking over me and, uh, and taking care of me and saying, Hey, let, let's connect this circle a little bit from, from back in your, your, you know, younger days. 
Nice. So, yeah. Nice. Well, yeah. I, I, if you, if you don't mind, I like to wrap it up with a question. I like to ask all, all of the guests on the podcast and you can answer this in whatever way you want. Uh, sure. But, but Richard, what is your approach to the business of writing? Okay. Um, clarify business for me a little bit. Oh, like what is your, uh, when you think about sort of an approach to business, whether that be something like, you know, should you be aggressive? Should you be a hard worker? Should you be organized? Should you be spontaneous? You know, like sort of the mindset around business. Um, you know what, I'm, I'm probably, and I don't know if it'll be helpful to anyone who who actually listens to me say this, um, because it's kind of, you know, I can see, I could see maybe some people, well, I can see it maybe connecting with someone, but I can also see some eyes being rolled because it kind of goes back to how, what I talked about with the magazine. Um, and that is that, you know, when those first stories I wrote and they were recently collected into this, this little book that Paul over at Thunderstorm Books published. And, and it was designed to have a print run of like 300 copies because that's what I told him. I said, I'd love to do it. I think it'd be a lot of fun to go back and look at these and they're literally, you know, 15 of my first 25 stories mm. that were published and they're not good. <laughs> you know, they're, what they are, what I realize now is they're comic book stories. They are book, they're stories that should have been written as comic books um, because they're very basic revenge monster. Um, they're very graphic. They're everything that I'm not. Yeah, I, I look, I wrote this in the introduction. I'm like, who the hell was I to write all these stories that were set in urban settings? I'm like, the only time I went to Baltimore was to go to the Orioles game. You know, <laughs> I grew up in the Wonder Years. So I was amazed at how many were set in urban settings with like, you know, fires burning and, and littered strewn alleys and all this stuff. And I'm like, what was I thinking? And there's all these monsters and so much revenge. And, and uh, you know, I'd say half of them had a lot of gore stuff that I just I don't even begin to do. Um, but it, for me, it, it it told the story of where I once I became an honest writer and, 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 and started having some success as far as finding a, a real audience was when I started writing the stories that were kind of honest and, and true to me, um, whether it was setting them, you know, in those neighborhoods that I knew so well, so I could write about them in a way that, that made you believe in them more. Um, but I also just think, and this is a lesson I learned from Ed Gorman, who was a really great crime and mystery writer. And he, he wrote horror, Western, everything. But I remember reading Ed's stories for the first time and thinking, wow, how is he doing this? He's writing this entire 12 page story. That's about nothing more than this elderly guy on this park bench who happens to strike up this conversation with this hitman. He doesn't know he's a hitman, but it has such, um, it has such echo, you know, it, it leaves you thinking and it's got such an emotional connection and there's a sadness, there's a sense of melancholy and you really feel for this hitman, even though he's a bad guy. And, and, and he writes about these really small moments. And once I understood that those were that that was something I could do, I could write about whether it was a character or a place or a moment in time that was meaningful to me. Those were the stories that I, I started putting out there. And all of a sudden, readers responded to them really strongly. And they're like, wow, that story had a lot of heart. Or, you know what, I've known someone like that before. And, and, and you know, you put a tear in my eye. And I'm thinking, you know, what, I love monsters and all that other stuff. But... <clears throat> I don't write about them as well. I don't write them about, about them as honestly. So to kind of circle back in a long-winded way, of course, to your question was that that made me understand that the business of writing for me personally really came down to um, being an honest writer. That's when I started finding success. That's where I started focusing my attention. 
Um, and it wasn't forced. I look at those early stories and I'm like, okay, I was writing for markets. I was writing for these small magazines, which looked for gore or blood, or they wanted to have an illustration of a monster. And I'm, I'm thinking that's why I did it. Um, I also didn't have as much, you know, life experience and, and all that, but you know, once the, once I started being true to kind of what was important to me, even if it was something as small as, you know, the single mom that I witnessed at the bus stop with her little kid tugging on her pant leg. And all of a sudden my mind wrapped a whole little story around her, but it wasn't big and full of plot twists, but it meant something to me. Once I, I started having the confidence to put those down on paper, that's when, you know, uh, review success and finding a readership success started to happen. And so for me, that's about as business of writing as I can kind of get is it, that's when, you know, I followed my heart and that's ultimately what proved to be, you know, kind of the key for me to start finding that business success too. I think that's not only great writing business advice, but it's good life advice. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I, you know, I'm hard headed. So it took me a while. You know, I look at all these people who kind of get it right out of the gate. And I'm like, that's never been me. And I say the same thing with publishing. I always manage to do things the hard way, but you know, you just keep persevere and get through it. All right. Richard Chismar, a uh, great guy, fun interview. Uh, what are some takeaways you had there, JD? You know, um, just he's such a hard worker, you know, and like how, he had mentioned, like how a crazy series of events kind of led him down a particular path. Like if this didn't happen, that wouldn't have happened. And before you know it, like, you know, none of these things would have happened. Um, and I'm sure he wouldn't change any of that. Um, but just, you know, his entrepreneurship, like his, his attitude towards stuff, that's something that I'm seeing in a lot of lot of authors in general. Like none of them just sit on their hands and wait for people to hand something to them. They, they go out there on a limb and they, they try different things. Um, you know, you, you've got to, you've got to sell lemonade, you know, like you brought it up, like <laughs> you've got to take some chances in your life. If you don't, you know, it, it's, it's not going to happen for you. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to hand it to you. Um, and, and also the other thing that it, it kind of brought me back to, like just the way we all grew up. And I, I think the world has just changed a lot. Like yeah. we, we grew up in a very trusting, you know, different world than we have now. Like, you know, when I was a kid, like, you know, we, my, my parents would kind of unleash us in the morning, you know, like on a Saturday or whatever. And we wouldn't have to be back until it started getting dark for dinner. Like they had no idea where we were going or what we were doing. You know, we'd walk a mile to school, you know, with our, with our friends and we were all, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old or whatever. Um, you know, you didn't have to worry about that kind of thing. And in today's world, you know, like it's, it's unheard of. Um, so it makes me, you know, a lot of these stories like it, um, you know, it, obviously it came from that and yeah. it makes me, makes me wonder if that, even type of storytelling is just going to vanish with that, that particular lifestyle. Yeah, it could. And you know, something else I thought was really interesting when he was talking about how he started his first magazine and, uh, and, you know, and what that looked like back in the eighties and nineties. And, and, you know, I think in the conversation, we talked about the fact that like, yeah, he could probably couldn't replicate that now in 2020. But I think if you have an entrepreneurial mindset, what you're doing now is you're looking for what is the equivalent, what is the modern equivalent of that? So it might not be a fanzine the way Richard did it, but there could be some sort of grassroots, you know, content marketing style thing that you can do that might get your work in front of new readers. Yeah. And that kind of attitude, it's, it's really not something that you can teach to somebody. It's something I think you're either born with or you're not. And, and he's definitely got it. You know, like if, if he wanted to start cemetery dance today, you know, in today's world, he would find some way to make that happen. And it probably wouldn't be a print magazine out of his garage anymore. You know, it obviously would be on the internet. It might be a podcast. It might be this, it might be that. Um, but, but he, but he would get out there and he would try and he would find a way to, to make it work. 
Um, and if it failed, you know, most of these things do, you know, they, yeah. they fail five, five, 10 times before something actually succeeds. He's one of those guys that will pick himself back up, dust off, you know, and it sounds like he spent a little time on, on what did he call it? Misery Hill next door <laughs> you know, on a bad day. Um, and, you know, he probably went, figured out what, what went wrong, what he needed to do, do differently, and then got right back into it the next day, but he didn't give up. Yeah. Yep. Good point. So uh, glad we could bring that interview to everyone. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, excellent. That was Richard. So JD, the next episode we have, uh, episode 13, is kind of a special one. We, we had some logistic snafus, and rather than uh, bump a guest, we're going to just throw a bonus episode in there. Uh, so if you're listening in real time, you're going to get episode 13 on uh, Friday the 21st. And episode 14 is still be coming as, as planned on Monday the 24th. But we have a, a great guest for uh, this coming Friday. Um, you want to tell our listeners who, who we're going to be talking to? Yeah, it's Meg Gardner. Um, she's a, a fantastic thriller author, somebody that I've, I've run into a couple times at Thriller Fest at this point. I haven't actually like sat down and had a conversation with her, but you know, she will make the time to do that if you, if you can grab her in the hallway. Um, she's taught a couple of really cool classes at, at Thriller Fest, and, and her and I kind of showed up on a, a bunch of the same list at around the same time because she had unsub the first book in that series for her. It came out the same time as uh, Fourth Monkey uh, did for me. Um, so, you know, we kept popping up on these best of thriller lists and, and things like that for, for about a year, kind of running into each other that way. Uh, but I'd love to sit down and talk to her, um, just to, you know, kind of pick her brain a little bit. I mean, she's been at this for a little while. I think she's got at least 14, 15 books or so behind her. Uh, her latest one, uh, just came out on Tuesday. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Great. So everyone, uh, make sure you're checking your podcast feed on Friday. We normally publish on Monday, but you get a special bonus episode this week. So, uh, for our listeners, it'll be a short jaunt to the next episode. And JD, I will see you uh, next Monday. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.